Hey, everyone, and welcome to the Julia LaRose Show. I'm so excited to share with you this conversation with Greg Lukianoff. He is a well-known First Amendment attorney, a New York Times bestselling author, and the president and CEO of the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, previously called the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. I enjoyed this conversation because we really dug in to what free speech is, free speech culture, and some of the misconceptions around free speech. It's an important conversation at a critical time. I hope you enjoy. Well, Greg Lukianoff, he is a First Amendment attorney, a best-selling author, and president and CEO of the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, previously called the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. I mentioned he's a best-selling author. Uh, a few of his books include Unlearning Liberty, Campus Censorship, and The End of American Debate, Freedom from Speech, and he co-authored The Coddling of the American Mind, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure. Uh, Greg, thank you so much, and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. Of course. Well, I'm just going to kick things off with a very simple but basic important question, and that is, what is free speech? Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's most, in simplest sense, it's just the ability to say what you want and say what you will. Um, freedom of speech, you know, um, is the big Boolean circle around things like the First Amendment. Um, I, I, I think we're very luff, lucky to live in a country where Americans routinely confuse the First Amendment and freedom of speech. Um, but as I often point out, freedom of speech is the much bigger, bolder, older concept that led to the First Amendment, which is one of its best representations in law. But it, it's a much bigger idea than even the First Amendment can contain. So I imagine there are a lot of mis misconceptions out there. What are some of the big ones? Like, what is what is it that I'm missing when it comes to free speech? I did a... Um, and eight, I'm on episode 18 of a series that I'm doing with Nadine Strassen, um, uh, the former uh, president of the ACLU and, and a good friend um, who I've worked with for, for a long time, uh, trying to clear up misconceptions about freedom of speech. Um, and, you know, I probably could do another 20 <laughs> easily. There are, there are so many misconceptions. But I do think that one of the best ones is embodied in um, this sort of crusade against misinformation. Um, and yes, I get it that you should be concerned if people are willfully lying to people about things that could be medically damaging to them. But it sometimes gets talked about as if it's sort of like a no brainer. You know, oh, yeah, we should absolutely be regulating disinformation. Like they don't seem to get that. The truth is actually very hard to know. And this is something that my friend Jonathan Rausch, you know, he, he's a great champion of freedom of speech. And he wrote a book called Constitution of Knowledge and another book called Kindly Inquisitors. And the whole point is that our intuitions tend to be wrong, our our guesses tend to be wrong, but we still hold them as if they're absolutely true. Um, so the whole process of finding out what of distinguishing truth from falsity, it's arduous, it's lifelong, it's not nearly as easy as it sounds. And the idea that we can just put, for example, the government in charge of um, banning what it sees as misinformation. I mean, first of all, that's a blank check. Uh, they can do they can silence almost anybody. But it, it also just it, it plays havoc with the fact that what we think is true changes almost certainly from year to year, but almost day to day. Yeah. And we'll get into more of that because I, I think that comes down to the importance of critical thinking as well. Um, oh, yeah. I guess another kind of follow on, though, to misconceptions of free speech is, you know, when does it apply? Um, does it apply in the private sector or is it only like 
um, from the government? Like, I guess it's like, are you, are you protected from like retaliation of the government or from your employer, or I guess, you know, on college campuses, like when are you protected? Well, the first amendment only binds government. Um, it, it only tells the government what it can and can't do. Um, freedom of speech, though, as I said before, is, is an older idea uh, and it's not limited by law. Um, that's one of those things that we, um, we made the expansion from being the foundation for individual rights in education. And we announced about a month ago that we are expanding to be the foundation for individual rights and expression, which will expand beyond campus. Why we talked a lot about free speech culture, because no, um, it isn't against the law to fire one of your employees because you don't like what they said on Twitter. Um, you have the perfect rights to do that. Um, at the same time, I get worried that if we live in a society where people feel like they can't be employed with, and not give their authentic opinions on things, I don't think that's long-term good for, for society. However, I don't want it to be uh, you know, the government deciding that now we're actually extending these free speech protections to all corporations in the country because that, that limits the associational rights of private actors. So what we're arguing is essentially that we need to be, put a thumb back on the scale for knowing what people really think, uh, taking seriously the possibility you might be wrong, and always saying to ourselves, you know what, it's actually probably better that I know what this person thought. And, and it's probably better um, to have this you know, a person with a different point of view on my team, because I think we've gone way too far in the direction of people getting, to, to use a, a, a controversial term, canceled um, for, you know, in some cases, everything from retweeting a joke to just saying what they actually believe. Yeah, certainly, especially like in this digital age, I just think of like probably the conversations that are happening uh, in some of these channels, these digital channels um, in the workplace. Uh, you mentioned something that just kind of piqued my interest and you said free, free speech culture. What is that? Free speech culture, I, I think is, you know, I think the first part of it is taking seriously the possibility you might be wrong, knowing that you're not all knowing and hearing people out. You know, it, it's, it's very I, I think it's free speech culture is best represented by idioms we used to have as a society sayings. You know, it, when, when we were younger, I'm sure it's the same for you, um, although I'm decidedly older than you, um, that. Um, that there was sayings that people would say all the time, including it's a free country um, to each their own, not my cup of tea. Everyone's entitled to, to their um, to their opinion. All of these things that undergird the habits of living in a free society. Um, so I think that, you know, uh, I think all of these older idioms, which you don't really use anymore, are are, are reflective of a healthy attitude about discourse about um, about the give and take uh, in in, um, in daily life in a democracy. Yeah. Um, the foundation for individual rights and expression, that is like your newly expanded upon uh, mission of FIRE, which uh, I mentioned at the top was formerly uh, the foundation for individual rights in education. I think before we get into like, the expanded mission, maybe we should go back and talk about um, sure. the initial... I guess, genesis of this. And that was the work that you all were doing on college campuses here in the U.S. Can you kind of frame up for us, like what has happened on college campuses over the last, I don't know, what do you want to call it, a few decades or even in the last decade? Yeah, no, uh, you know, I, I went to law school specifically to do First Amendment slash free speech work. I specialized in it. I, I, I When I ran out of classes at Stanford, I, I did six credits on censorship during the Tudor dynasty, you know, because this is my passion. This is, this is what I wanted to do. And I 
joined FIRE about two years into its existence as its first legal director. And even though I you know, had already been defending free speech, I even worked at the ACLU of Northern California, um, I was still shocked at how easy it was to get in trouble for what you said on campus, even way back in 2001. And it is much, much worse now. Um, and one of the biggest shifts I saw was that up until about 2013, 2014, um, students were actually really good on free speech. They, they were always better than administrators. They're usually better than professors. They got, you know, the offensive lyrics, offensive jokes, you know, the idea that you, you don't have a right not to be offended. And that all changed like lightning struck right around the end of 2013 and going into 2014. And that's what led to my book, Coddling the American Mind with Jonathan Haidt, that, that essentially there was this major shift in the attitudes of students that, that was not the least bit subtle and we're still living in its aftermath. So I, I thought it was time to expand, it, that we could consider expanding when we could do things like, like we currently do, rate schools according to their commitment to freedom of speech that also utilizes polling where you can actually ask students on individual campuses, is the atmosphere like uh, at your school good for free speech? And once we could do that, I, I started to feel, and I think the whole organization started to feel called, frankly, to uh, to go beyond campus because we realized that although you can't save free speech in the United States without saving campus, you may not be able to save free speech on campus without saving the rest of the United States. Yeah, um, I did look on your site and I did play around with some of the, the rankings and I, and I saw that my alma mater, I believe they have a green light um, for, for free speech, which is always a good thing. Um, you mentioned like this problem has gotten worse, like give the folks who are listening a sense of like, how big of a problem is this on college campuses? We're talking about like people who've lost their jobs or students who've gotten suspended. Like what are the numbers that you can share? Yeah. Yeah, no, it, it's the only problem that I have of, of coming up with new examples is we have way too many of them from, from day to day and from week to week. But I'll give you the latest numbers on our scholar database, um, which really should be, which should be called sort of our scholar cancellation database, but we didn't want to be too political. So we call it our Scholars Under Fire database. Since 2015, and that was the year where we saw a big uptick, big uptick in professors getting in trouble and in some cases fired for what they said. Um, since 2015, we've seen 711 attempts to get professors fired. About two thirds of those are successful in getting that professor punished in some way. We're talking about you know hundreds of professors who have either stepped down or, 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 or been fired. Um, uh, three dozen of them at minimum tenured professors. Now, when I started a tenured professor losing their job for what they said or what their research said or for what they taught was unheard of. That, that was the whole reason why tenure existed. And now we're seeing dozens, it's a regular occurrence to see tenured professors getting fired for what they said. And keep in mind that this is already in an environment where many schools have very few dissenting professors to begin with. Schools tend to be very homogenous when it comes to politics. So the idea that, that there was like too much freedom of speech or thought on campus up until recently was kind of crazy, but it, keep, it keeps on going. Um, so, you know, some of the cases that your audiences might have heard of, you know, what was the incident involving trying to get Nicholas Christakis removed at Yale back in 2015, or more recently, Dorian Abbott, um, who was uh, a, a professor who was going to be teaching about exoplanets. Um, and he was uh, denied a speech at MIT because of some unrelated political opinions he'd, he'd written in a in a very you know in a very mainstream um publication and these cases just keep on 
happening. Um, and even despite this, you still have people who are on campus who have decided there's not nearly enough homogeneity of, of point of view among professors. So in the UC system, for example, they just started having um, a, a policy that that uh, applicants would be gauged on their commitment to uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion ideology. And it's like, okay, so wait, <laughs> you looked at the current situation and said that there's what, too much diversity of thought? People were too free on campus? So you needed a Another political litmus test? Yeah. You say a 711 attempts. Like that, that number is striking. Like when you put it in perspective like that. Uh, and you mentioned a couple of the examples. I, and this is since 2015. Like what? It makes me want to ask, like, what happened? I graduated in 2010. What yeah. changed in that time? Um, you know, the whole book, Coddling the American Mind, is trying to figure out why were the students who were hitting campus around 2014 so different? Um, one thing that is definitely the case is that there are far fewer moderates among uh, Generation Z. Um, sometimes when I like to you know, mess with people, I'll say, it's like, you know, there actually are more conservatives among Generation Z. And there are more liberals. Um, it's at the expense of people who self-identify as moderate. I think that's part of it. I think that um, there's a very strong anti-free speech message that started really being promoted in K through 12 um, for the previous 15 years. I think that it was one of the unforeseen negative side effects of the anti-bullying uh, campaigns that took place in 2010 is it caused a, re, um, a reframing of freedom of speech as being a, uh, about good guys versus bad guys, uh, good versus evil, as we talk about in Coddling the American Mind. Um, and I think that that played a big role on it. But the thing that really sped all these other trends up, of course, social media. Well, we should definitely bring up social media. Um, what is it about social media that amplifies this? Yeah. Well, I think there's lots of different reasons why social media plays such a big role here. Not the least of which is that there have been people who wanted, you know, you fired for when you were reporting at CNBC, wanted um, wanted people to get in trouble for what they said in public, reporters to, to, to be removed, uh, authors to have their books banned. But, you know, not so long ago, they would send an angry letter to the publisher and that would get filed away in a drawer and never heard of again. Uh, social media allows, you know, um, one angry uh, respondent to join with dozens of others, oftentimes create the feeling that an organization is completely under siege, even if it might be 100 people um, who, who, are, who are angry about this. And it's given the power of, uh, of, of people who want to censor um, a sense that they're part of an part of an army. So I definitely think that the there was a major change in dynamic when you went from you know uh, millions of people talking to each other through publications to billions of people being able to talk to each other uh, through uh, through social media. Yeah, um, and that's that's definitely um, you know something we'll dig into later because I do have a few um, social media related questions. But just to keep on the topic though of campuses. Is there any sort of like green shoot that you're seeing out there or, or now that you've raised a lot of awareness and you, when you wrote in your book, um, not just, not only, uh, calling on the American mind, but unlearning Liberty, you gave so many examples, um, mm -hmm. including, you know, whether it was in the dormitory life with the RAs and the students to the professors, um, are you starting to see any sort of changes where maybe universities are embracing more of a free speech culture um, what's working? What's not working? I feel like 
the fever um, has broken to some degree, um, but it had to. Uh, the worst year for free speech on campus and free speech actually in America that I've seen period in my lifetime was 2020. Um, this was when, you know, over the course of about two months in the summer, you had, you know, major journalists stepping down, citing that their own environment for sometimes for publications that they had founded themselves um, was, was too stifling. That's when you had the Harper's letter, 150 uh, left of center people saying uh, free speech is being stifled. In, in the publishing world. Um, and that's when we saw on a year when we thought it was going to be really quiet on campus because 80% of schools were shut down. Um, just to give some perspective, we get about a thousand case submissions on a busy year. Um, even with most campuses around the country shut down, we got 1,500 um, in 2020, which was really, uh, re really amazing. Um, and I don't think something that, that is that intense can maintain that, that, that level of intensity forever. Um, so I do think it makes sense that you're starting to see some sign, some sanity, you know, is returning uh, to the situation on, on campus. But I wrote a 6,000 word piece in Reason Magazine, a feature um, talking about how we should learn the lessons of the last time there was, forgive the expression, but politically correct censorship on campus, which was roughly 1985 to 1995. This is when schools started passing speech codes, um, all of which were defeated in court. But there was a sense, and this, you know, this is when people first became aware of the term political correctness as, a, as an insult. Um, and I'd say around 94, 95, there was a there was a thawing in that. This codes have been defeated, PC became a joke in the culture. Um, and unfortunately, the response was, whew, thank goodness that's over. And what actually happened for the next 20 years, things got worse on campus until the next time you had an ideological um, paroxysm, it, you, you suddenly had, uh, it, it was suddenly much worse. So I do think that it, it can't keep up as intensely cancel happy as it was in 2020. And, um, and there is some signs that, that it's starting to abate a little bit, but unless we make meaningful reforms this time around to protect free speech on campus and off, it's only going to be worse next time. Wow. One, going from 1,000 cases to 1,500, 50% increase in 2020. Um, but you kind of mentioned that the fever seems to be abating a bit, but what are, makes me wonder, like, what are some of the reforms? Like, what what is needed on campus? Yeah, well, I mean, it would help if people were just sort of more skeptical um, with the hyper-bureaucratization of campuses. Um, having huge numbers of administrators, um, you know, the, uh, the number of administrators on campus has been uh, expanding for decades now faster than the number of professors. And that's what you're paying for. You're not paying for universities that have way more professors than they had 20 years ago. You're paying for universities that have way more administrators. And those administrators, um, oftentimes if they're in residence life, for example, see as part of their job that they police speech on campus. So I think this is one of the reasons why I was so concerned about the idea of doing debt forgiveness without any attempt to de-bureaucratize universities. Uh, we, we can't keep having these institutions getting more and more bureaucratized, more and more extensive over the years. Um, so I definitely think that a, a less bureaucratic university could be not just a cheaper university, but also one that's more free, that has more freedom of speech and more due process. As far as reforms that I ask people to make, you know, um, I have this, I have my list of six things. Um, that I tell people to go to their alma maters and ask for. One, get rid of their speech codes. Uh, FIRE can help with that. 
to stand up, uh, tell your university presidents to stand up for uh, students and professors uh, early and often when they get in trouble. Uh, three, adopt something like the Chicago Statement, an academic freedom statement statement for the uh, for the age of social media. Uh, four, have an orientation that explains freedom of speech. It's actually a pretty sophisticated concept, particularly as it relates to academic freedom. Five, poll your students and professors to see what the environment on campus is like. And six, Think about alternatives. I think that the idea that we're sending people to, you know, um, your, your sons and daughters to schools that, you know, try to argue that $70,000 a year only um, covers the cost of one uh, of educating one, uh, sorry, half the cost of educating one student for one year, I think is ridiculous. I think we have to figure out better ways to signal to employers that this person is hardworking, is smart, and actually knows statistics, writing, etc. You bring up some really interesting points. And the one that kind of like stopped me, I took some notes was um, this kind of explosion, ballooning of like the bureaucracy, all the administrators, the expenses that come with that. And am I hearing maybe it's like a correlation with the crackdown on free speech on campus? I find that that to me is really fascinating to see how those kind of go in tandem. Yeah, no, everybody needs to understand that, that, that for most of my career, the people who are clamping down on free speech on campus were just the administrators. So from 2001 to 2014, it was overwhelmingly just coming from administrators. What's happening now is the students have gone from being great on free speech to being not so great. But still, every time you see a shout down on campus, every time you see. Uh, so there was this big incident at Yale. Yale, by the way, got our Lifetime Achievement Award for for censorship this past year. And this was before there was 100 students in a class class of 180 who showed up to shout down a presentation between an evangelical Christian litigator and a liberal litigator talking about where uh, right and left can agree on in Supreme Court advocacy. Students showed up, shouted it down. And every time something like that happens, universities need to do an investigation to find out not just why didn't administrators stop it, but in many cases, why did they encourage it? And that's very clearly happening, uh, happening at Yale at this point. Um, I mean, they, they <laughs> we had so many bad cases uh, from Yale just in the past couple of years. The idea that no administrator has gotten fired for it is, is, is really damning for, for, for Yale. Yeah, not the award you want to win. Um, it makes <laughs> no. and it makes you wonder. Sometimes does you does it feel like the are the students getting blamed for this? Are they at fault for it, or is it just because mm-hmm. of the tone at the top? And it makes you also wonder like where are the professors in all yeah. this. Well, um, students are getting blamed for it, and sometimes that blame is fair. Um, sometimes uh, it's not. I, I think when you look at you know, our polling that we do of students, uh, most of them seem to get free speech, uh, but particularly as you look more on the left side of the spectrum, you see a lot more comfort with even violence in response to free speech, uh, particularly on people who self-describe as, as very liberal. That's troubling. And that's something that 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 is not okay. Um, and it's something that no, nobody, sh- and that sh- is something that should be explained in the orientation that all schools uh, need to have, but almost none do explaining about, you know, core principles of freedom of speech. However, um, I don't think any of this would be happening if it wasn't for the fact that administrators are are very politicized. Um, they have, you know, student groups and professors that they'd like to see go away. And I think that they they sometimes facilitate this just by turning a blind eye. But in other cases, you know, they directly go out and say, you know, let's go, let's go protest uh, this comedy show, as happened in a documentary film that we made called um, Can We Take a Joke? That was about the 
um, at University of Washington, a, a, a attempt to shut down a comedy musical put on by an African-American student because they thought it was uh, too offensive. And when it comes to where the professors are, the professors, you know, are in a tough space. Like they, they face cancellation from um, offended students on campus. They uh, have secret hearings that, you'll ne- that we don't even know, know uh, specifically about, but we know they happen quite often. So that 711 examples I'm talking about is not including the fact that there are like secret apparatuses that you'll never hear about a, prof- a professor getting in trouble um, uh, uh, through those. Yeah, it makes you wonder where, where's the due process. Yeah, uh, and that's one of our, our big causes on campus as well. Uh, as we do the expansion, we're just free speech off campus, but we still have a part of our mission on, on campus to defend due process in addition to academic freedom and free speech. Yeah, um, I'll get into more of that. Just I just have one other following question, just because while we're on the topic of colleges and you're talking about, you know, alternatives. I don't, I don't know. I don't know if you're a parent. I'm not a parent. Um, I am. I have, I have a four and a six year old. Okay. Um, well they're young. Um, so they still have some time, but I mean, if you were to put yourself yourself in the shoes of a parent, maybe thinking about college for their kids or like, mm-hmm. I mean, what kind of discussion would you have with kids who, I mean, let's call them teenagers who are like preparing getting ready, um, to start that process or maybe the parents of those teenagers about college today and maybe what they should look for. I'd just be curious like what you would do. Well, one thing that I'm very clear on, and this is something that Height and I both came to in writing Coddling the American Mind, a recommendation we did not expect to come to, um, which is that we think that students should not be going straight from high school to college. Um, they should be doing something for at least a year, preferably having something that involves some autonomy, some independence from their parents, some real challenge and hard work. Um, Because what's happening now is we're sending uh, students to campuses to, uh, without enough personal experience, without a sense of what's called self, self-efficacy, the idea that they can handle themselves on their own. And it's bad for mental health. It's bad for academics. Um, it's bad uh, for campuses in, in, in any any number of ways. Um, so yeah, I, I, I believe strongly in a, in a gap year, particularly if that year involves real work. Um, but in addition to that, you know, look at the fire rankings. Um, there are some schools you should absolutely not go to if you care about freedom of speech, and that now includes Yale, but also includes lesser known schools like DePaul. Also includes Syracuse University, which was um, just a repeat offender in our experience. But uh, surprisingly, I guess not so surprisingly, schools like Claremont McKenna, schools like Purdue, uh, schools like University of Chicago have really distinguished themselves as being quite good on freedom of speech. So I think if more people voted with their feet to go to these schools that actually will stand up for students and professors when they get in trouble. Um, it could, it could really transform the market and, and fast. Yeah. Um, definitely check out the rankings and it does make you wonder too, like if they want to go to one of those schools, it doesn't rank so well, just like you'd probably almost give them the talk to before going to school about, you know, be careful what you say or do. I don't yeah. know. It would be well, a people, little frightening. People do that. I mean, that, 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 and it's heartbreaking. People are, you know, sending their, uh, and I've talked to students who say this, so it's just like, oh, I just keep my mouth shut. I don't, I don't give my actual opinions. And of course that leads to a self-fulfilling prophecy of everybody, uh, of people getting more and more polarized while people are terrified to say what they really think. Yeah. Um, and now this is starting to spill over into the workplace. And that's why we should talk about the expanded uh, mission of FIRE and I guess it almost feels like to me, maybe it's because this generation's graduated, the ones you wrote about in the books, maybe, I don't know. Um, 
Tell me about the decision to expand the mission. What was driving that for you guys? Well, you know, we're all true believers in freedom of speech at FIRE. And one thing that makes us different than practically any other nonprofit that's probably ever existed is that we really are committed to making sure that people who vote for different major party candidates work in the same office um, and defend freedom of speech together. Um, I mean, when I worked at the ACLU in, in, in my third year of law school, there were people who voted for different candidates, but it was, you know, either the Democrat or the Green Party. Actually having people who come from completely different faith traditions or no faith, uh, people who come from different economic backgrounds, but also people who are, you know, Republicans and Democrats working in the, in in the same office together. Um, that's one of the things that makes us different. So we've always kind of felt called to at some point step up and be like, listen, we, we've developed a sterling reputation as being completely consistent on freedom of speech. Um, it's time for us to expand our work, our, our work beyond campus. Um, and we were thinking about announcing this maybe in 2024 um, at our 25th anniversary, but things were so bad in 2020, we decided to speed the whole process up. And we're doing a $75 million expansion. We've, we've been able to raise about 30 for it so far, but a big chunk of it is um, uh, advertising uh, commercials that actually really highlight how compelling and, and sort of beautiful and poignant America's commitment to freedom of speech really can be at its best. And we think that that reminding people that, you know, believing in free speech like everybody did, you know, six or seven years ago, it's still OK. You still have permission to believe in these old small L liberal ideas. Yeah, I noticed one of your billboards went the other day when I was driving into work and I, as I was turning onto the street, it was right there in Miami here in the, the Brickell neighborhood. Um, That's great. I, I guess, so is it more of like an advertising push or are you all going to take cases? Because I know you took cases um, mm -hmm. in, in the world of academia. Yep. What are you all, gonna, what are your plans as it relates to more corporate America? Uh, sure. Well, no. So the three places we're expanding is one communications. Uh, and one of the reasons why we're doing this massive public education campaign is both to break the spell, because we know most people really do still believe in freedom of speech, but also because we need, you know, many more. We, we need to be better. Now. We, we need uh, more email addresses. We need more Facebook followers. We need, need more Twitter followers, all this stuff. But the other two departments where we're really growing, one is research, which reports uh, directly to me and to be able to um, uh, to figure out what the scene for free speech looks like all in every aspect of American life. But then we're tripling the size of, of our litigation team. Um, so that's another reason why I need to be out there is we're looking for, you know, the best talent in the country. We're looking for, you know, really, uh, really great free speech litigators to, 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 to come join us. Um, so we're going to be litigating. Now, in that case, that's overwhelmingly because of um, we're going to be doing First Amendment lawsuits because uh, that's what you know that's what the law protects. But when it comes to businesses, since businesses are free to hire and fire who they see fit, um, uh, regardless of freedom of speech, the only way you're going to keep free speech alive um, outside of the legal realm. Um, is by promoting this idea of a culture of free speech. So I wrote this article with Jonathan, with, with my co-author Jonathan Haidt as part of the afterword of Coddling the American Mind called How to Keep Your Corporation Out of the Culture War. Um, because I think that we have a problem if every corporation decides that they're not just a widget factory, but they also, you know, have a very explicit political identity that you'll be fired for disagreeing with. That may be within the rights of that founder to decide that. But if every company's like that, that's bad for democracy um, in the long and short term. 
Do you feel like... Does it feel like we're headed in that direction? Um, What are you like? Let's talk about what the scene looks like, as you mentioned, kind of the 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 layout here in corporate America um, for free speech or when for companies that maybe adopt more political ideology. What are you kind of sensing out there? I think that there are a lot of companies that would love to be neutral <laughs> with regards to politics, but they're terrified to tell their younger employees that they, that they want to be that. Um, so I think that, you know, um, Brian Armstrong at Coinbase, uh, you know, coming out and saying, we're not a political organization. Um, he was willing to give 60 employees um, severance packages uh, who, who wanted um, Coinbase to be activists in its own right. Um, Vivek Ramaswamy's, you know, um, uh, books on on um, woke capitalism, you know, really make an argument for how damaging this can be and how ultimately we're having corporations make decisions that really should be decided on a democratic basis, not on the basis of how wealthy or powerful you are um, in your corporation. I think there are many heads of organizations who would love to be able to you know, hire anybody, no matter what they believe, uh, just on how talented they are. Or, you know, oftentimes brilliant people are really eccentric. That, that, that's not new. And, if, and you're limiting the pool of talent that you have if you're saying only people who already agree with their ideology. Who's going to win this fight? I don't actually know. I'm, I'm hopeful. Um, I'm confident that uh, that groups, uh, organizations that actually do have political diversity among their employees are going to do better. Um, but who, who's going to win this fight? You know, it's going to be up to everybody um, to, to raise their hands and say, it's like, no, actually having an office where people disagree on who to vote for is actually healthy. Do you have any sort of like thesis or I don't know if you have data at this point, but um, where it might be the most... Um I guess I want to say like maybe more profound or amplified or um, which industry might even be like the worst for free speech. All of them. Um, I would say that the, so a lot of the worst cases I've seen the, the environments that sound like junior high school's gone wrong um, are, have been newspapers for the most part, you know, like some of the stories that came out of the New York times, when Barry Weiss left and James Bennett was forced out, um, it sounded just like a nasty environment where people really were, you know, out for themselves, but then framing everything as basically we have to get rid of this person because blank social justice. Um, uh, Batya Ungar Sargon wrote a great book called Bad News, um, which I recommend everybody who thinks a big part of the problem in the industry, and I agree entirely with your thesis, is given journalism jobs tend to pay so poorly. Um, and because like a lot of the more august institutions institutions want to get people who have those Harvard, Yale um, degrees, it leads to a situation where you have only people who come from wealth can afford to take that low of a salary and go to these go to these fancy schools. So it leads to this kind of class bubble at the top of national uh, at the top of national media that's very much out of touch with with the rest of the public. I think that's one of the reasons why it's hit journalism so hard. That's a yeah. And I'm a former journalist. And that's um, an interesting observation that you uh, bring up as well. I, I want to bring up your own background too, because I find it fascinating. Um, you are a Democrat, am I correct? Mm-hmm. That's what you wrote yeah. in your book. And um, one of the things I think that is so fascinating to me is you've took on cases for folks that you didn't agree with personally oh, yeah. uh, and all the time. And I think that's really important. And I feel like that might be missing in our country. I was hoping maybe you could just kind of talk about your own experience 
and kind of how you approach life and interacting with people of different ideologies um, that you might not agree with. Yeah, no, that, uh, I, I appreciate you bringing that up. The um, yeah, you know, when I was younger, um, being a Democrat, being left of center and being pro free speech, they were practically synonymous. Like the, the basically like if you were uh, it, it was considered to be kind of like the, one of the defining qualities of being you know, left of center. And I only noticed that this was changing when I got to campus around 1992 and then, then and later in law school and from 97 to 2000, um, that it was this academic disenchantment with freedom of speech, which is normal when you think your person's going to be in charge. You know, you can cynically start opposing freedom of speech when you think that the people who you like are going to be making the laws limiting it. Um, and apparently that erosion of belief in freedom of speech had been going on on campus for quite some, for, for quite some time, at least since the early 80s. And that's where the, the, the first round of speech codes came from. But I always thought um, that uh, the sort of embarrassing, problematic people that we had on the left were, to be honest, our professors, um, the, the wackier ones, uh, and that essentially the sort of more working class version of small L liberalism would actually win, which is, of course, very pro-free speech. And unfortunately, that's not really the way it's happened. Um, I think that, and this comes out in the polling, I'm 47. Um, people 45 or older, um, even uh, even on the left side of the spectrum, still are very good on freedom of speech. Um, when it goes to the right, you know, uh, practically, you know, when you do the polling there, there's lots of reason to be optimistic about appreciation for freedom of speech on the right. Um, and people younger than 30 um, are on the left, uh, just don't know that much about freedom of speech because they haven't been taught. But unfortunately, there's a good, you know, uh, 30 to, uh, to 45 range that's just much more cynical about free speech. Now, one of the things that I learned when I started at FIRE, because we really do have people who vote for different people in, in, in the office, was that, you know, in my little San Francisco bubble, you know, I was not um, I was not meeting people who really disagreed on politics or religion. And so when I started at FIRE and I got to meet, you know, um, it, we had Marxists, we had, uh, we had devout Catholics, we had an evangelical Christian. And of all the people um, on staff, when we were very small, the, the single most open-minded person on staff was an evangelical Christian. And it really hit me like a smack in the face that I was the one who was being extremely closed-minded about this. So I think if you're willing to talk to people again, uh, across lines of difference, it makes it's not just good for your role as a citizen. I think it makes for a better, richer, more interesting life. Yeah. And just like the importance of listening to um, hearing oh, yeah. different perspectives. You're also, I, I understand you're writing another book. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. And working, it's on cancel culture. Yep. Working on a book called The Canceling of the American Mind. Not super creative um, after writing Coddling of the American Mind, but I think I'm kind of stuck with the gerunding of the American Mind. I don't know. I think um, you, you have a good brand there, but. Yeah, I, you know, I, I might as well go with it. And originally I was planning to write something that was much more of a follow-up on coddling, um, which would be more focused on psychology and talking about how we're really doing these young people a disservice by teaching them the habits of anxious and depressed people, which was more or less like the, the premise of coddling. Um, but this came out of my complete frustration with 
the fact that, you know, when you're talking about 711 attempts to get professors fired, that's not just a big number. That's historic. Uh, Something happened in in the last couple of years and it was big. And despite that, you still have people on Twitter, for example, saying cancel culture isn't real. None of this is going on. Now, there are fewer of those people um, than than ever before, partially because the every you know piece of research you can show shows that people are afraid of speaking up um, that there are you know plenty of examples of people getting in trouble but the fact that I still have to have this argument I'm like okay I'm going to just put this all into a book and I'm co-authoring it with the 21 year old wunderkind uh, Ricky Schlott um, who comes from a more conservative background uh, but we're just going to lay out um, you know the argument that not only is cancel culture real it's historic and it's partially because of this really cheap way we've decided that it's okay to argue based on ad hominem attacks, not actually the argument that your opponent is making. No, if you don't mind, I have a few follow on questions to that. Um, So cancel culture is real. How do you define, like, how do you define cancel culture? So my, my definition for cancel culture, and there are, there are many different attempts to, to define it. And I'm going to try to cover um, in the book, we're going to try to cover at least three or four different definitions. But my preferred definition, it said simply, is the uptick after 2014 in successful attempts to get people uh, fired, removed from office, otherwise punished um, for opinion that would be protected under the First Amendment. Now, to get really technical about it, because there was some, there are some critics out there saying, you know, make, making points that I think are not very good, but saying um, that, <laughs> that according to the Pickering case line of cases, that essentially establishes that you're allowed to have an opinion off the job. Um, so there, there, there will be a much more technical definition for what we mean in there, but it's not really worth going through that whole part. Um, and I think that when you understand it as being a historic moment that we're in sort of like the age of cancellation, um, it, it's things start to make a lot more sense. Yeah. Um, you also say like you mentioned people are afraid of speaking up or a lot of people are. I guess. Have you ever been afraid to speak up or do you, you suppose you've met people who certainly have? How do you talk to them about speaking up? Do you tell them, hey, you should speak up. It's okay to speak up. Maybe if more people did, I don't know. Like, how do you solve this problem? Um, It's not easy. And it does does require a certain amount of bravery. And I always try to be very clear. I give this advice um, and I don't find any of it easy to follow. Um, I'm half British, you know, like I'm, I've always, I'm, I'm, I, I can be hyper polite in lots of different circumstances. I don't want to hurt people's feelings. Um, but there are things more important than politeness. Um, truth is more important than politeness. Um, authenticity is more important than politeness. Um, and, but you, you shouldn't pretend like any of the stuff is easy. Um, the, so I do think that one thing that can really help people be more courageous is, is the sense that people will, will have their backs. I've said this on Twitter, you know, for example, like if one of your friends, if there's a campaign to get someone canceled on Twitter for uh, for a joke, they said, which seems to happen like practically every day, it's perfectly fine to just raise your hand and say, so-and-so is a good person and he's my friend. And I think that we've watched people um, since the, the explosion of cancel culture on 2014, 2015, have their careers and lives ruined without enough people stepping forward to be brave enough to say, no, I don't care um, <laughs> like what they said. Uh, this, this is a you know, good person. 
In many cases, of course, you know, the things that will actually get you in trouble are things that aren't even unpopular in, in, in the rest of the country. But you do need a certain amount of minimal toughness in order to, to fully enjoy freedom of speech. And for that matter, to be a free citizen in a, in a free country. Um, I think that we're uh, we, we do show, unfortunately, too much cowardice sometimes um, in the face of people who um like bullies often are that if you just push back a little bit, they go, oh, okay. And they look for, they look for an easier target. Yeah. Sometimes you need, um, what my friend Sahil Bloom call, has coined, uh, your darkest hour friends, the folks who are willing to stand up for you like um, in those moments. I really like that one too. And I, I have to give him credit because it's not mine and it's too good. Um, you also mentioned like we are in this moment in time where there are these cheap ways of arguing. And I imagine a lot of these arguments are taking place on social media. So I did want to revisit this in the conversation. So let's explore our relationship with mm-hmm. social media. Like how, how do you think about it? How have you seen it evolve? Is it just spiraling and getting worse and worse? Uh, you know, I honestly think I am actually somewhat more optimistic th- about social media than you might expect me to be, given how much I've written about it. Um, but every new communications technology requires society adjusting to its existence. Um, so, you know, p- people uh, sometimes when they hear th- that me and John Hyde are so critical of what social media has done to society, you'll have people say, oh, they would have said the same thing about the printing press. And I always want to get people to pause on that. You mean the device that led to hundreds of years of religious war in Europe um, led to an increase in the witch trials? Um, you know, it had all these negative outcomes that might have made it seem at the time that it just wasn't worth it. Um, and but that was partially because our societies hadn't adapted to its existence yet. I feel like what's happened over the last 10 years is that we're not we weren't ready at all for social media. Um, it, it's incredibly powerful. And of course, it's going to be disruptive when billions more people are suddenly as part of a discussion. But eventually people start learning cultural norms about how to live with that technology. So I'm more suspicious of top down solutions to, to social media issues. I have seen, you know, uh, people I, I felt like discussions have gotten at least somewhat better uh, in my social media life. I, I think that. Some of the old tactics that used to work to get people canceled aren't taken quite as seriously as they used to be. So I, I think that we might be in the very early stages of a, uh, a, a revolution in communications um, that we have to catch up to as a society. What, what do you mean by revolution? Well, you know, it was really transformative when uh, when the printing press happened. It was really transformative when you had um, uh, cheap printing so that you could have newspapers. Radio changed everything. Um, and what, what's going on right now is social media suddenly having an unbelievable amount <laughs> percentage of the of the entire population of the planet able to communicate directly with each other. At this point, what social media has proven it can do is it can tear down any institution, it can tear down any idea, and it can tear down any person. Now, before I just frame that as negative, there are, by all means, institutions that needed to be torn down. Uh, Egypt being overthrown under Hosni Mubarak was, you know, was good. Uh, there are bad ideas that needed to be torn down. There are bad people like Harvey Weinstein, who needed to be torn down. Um, But we haven't figured out a way to build anything yet um, with social media. Uh, And I think that um, as as society adapts, we should think of think of the the fact that when you're trying to figure out what's true and what's false, you want a system that really disconfirms things where people poke holes in your ideas 
but ends up in a space where it actually helps advance knowledge or truth. But you're never going to get there if all we, we condemn ourselves to are just arguments about this person isn't nice or I don't like this person or this person works for the wrong person or this person has the wrong politics. You'll never get to truth through ad hominem attacks. Um, so I hope and one of the things we're going to be arguing for in canceling the American mind is a better, more adult way to argue. A better, more adult way to argue. What is uh, I don't want to make you give away everything from your book, but what do you how do you do that? What does that look like? How do you even get people to think like that? You know, I, I think that first and foremost, uh, take seriously the possibility you might be wrong. And if you are arguing for points, um, then let people know that. If you're arguing just to you know defeat your opponents, then you know let people know that. But if you're arguing towards truth, then under those circumstances, the person, the fact that you don't like the person you're arguing with is completely irrelevant. Um, I have to point this out all the time. Um, there's nothing about someone being a bad person that means they're automatically wrong in all things. And there's nothing about uh, someone being a very good person or having politics you agree with that makes them automatically right. Of course, actually, someone who is so doctrinaire that they agree with every position that you have, they might actually not be that great of, you know, great of it or innovative of a thinker to begin with. So I think that having spaces where the idea is like it's not just going to be cheap point scoring, um, it's going to be actually argument, counter argument. Um, once you actually start having some of these rules about how to get towards better arguments more in place, uh, we can. We, I think we can start to expect, and this may sound you know too utopian, but I think we can start to expect, if that were to happen, much better things coming out of social media rather than the viper's nest it often is. Yeah, um, we would hope for better things to come from social media for sure. Um, just speaking of which, at the time of this recording, um, I guess the Twitter deal is still in flux. Or we don't know. Okay, so Elon Musk at this time of the recording here has terminated the merger agreement. Twitter seems they have hired a law firm to get involved. We don't know like who's going to ultimately end up owning Twitter as we're recording this. So we'll just set that aside. But um, if you were to think about what the future might look like for Twitter, and I'm only bringing up Twitter as an example, because I almost feel like that's become the place where a lot of these arguments are taking place. At least yeah. to me, it's not on my Instagram I like rarely get on Facebook and I know a lot of you, my, when I was teaching college uh, or I taught a course, my students said uh, Facebook was for middle-aged people. So I thought that was kind of funny. They said that they were not using Facebook. Um, they use TikTok, but I digress. Um, but if you were to, I guess, I don't know, fix Twitter or if that's the right word, mm -hmm. but if, you know, if, let's say a deal goes through, if you could change Twitter or what would you do? Like what would make it better? Well, I wrote um, to Elon Musk when he was talking about, I did an open letter to him. And what I said was, I don't want the government to come in and say that Twitter now has to live by First Amendment standards. Um, that's something that uh, in, in Florida and Texas, there were attempts to sort of bring social media and, and apply First Amendment type rules to it by force of law. But I do think that you got 100 years of wisdom in American First Amendment uh, jurisprudence. You got 100 years of some of the smartest people in the country figuring out ways to have freedom of speech in the real world. So you should borrow from those. Like if you're going to call something harassment or incitement or intimidation, you should probably use the legal definitions of those, or at least something that's very that that's very close to it. Uh, you know, if I could uh, do something to it, in, improve Twitter, I would want to do more um, thorough investigation, more uh, and more 
teaching people about what a good argument looks like, how to have it. And if you don't, if you want to opt out of the good argument, if you just want to, you know, quip and make fun of people, fine, go off to your own corner of Twitter, that that's swell. Um, but there should be areas, you know, where the, the goal is to actually get closer to the truth, to figure out where we have common in, uh, commonalities, rather than who can get who canceled on any given day. Yeah, um, the importance of having a good argument, it makes me also just bring up this thought, like, are are we in like a critical thinking crisis or we, is this a crisis when it comes to just having a civil argument with someone? It feels like this is like a lost, I don't know if it's like a lost skill set or are we just not teaching it anymore? Like what is going on? Well, you know, it's, it's important not to not not to think that there was ever some perfect golden age, you know, where everybody was reasonable and everybody argued fairly with each other and everybody just was concerned about the truth. I call that the the golden age myth myth, uh, you, you know, um, no, and, and I'm not arguing that. I do, however, think that we don't have to argue quite this badly. Um, and I think that there are plenty of people who want to have more substantive discussions. Um, and I think that uh, figuring out who those people are and creating environments in which they can do that uh, is is really positive. Um, And the funny thing is, when when it came to, one of the reasons why social media is so disruptive is there are so many people on there who never had a voice before. And unfortunately, a lot of the people who never had a voice before didn't necessarily have all that much constructive stuff to say. However, I I remain confident and enough of a fan of humanity to realize that along with some of the people who were just there to tear people down, there are voices that have never really gotten access to uh, big forums before who have valuable things to say. And we should be looking for who those who those people are and taking advantage of this unprecedented communications technology to see what, what best thing we can make of it. Mm-hmm. Um, just one more follow on to, to social media, just to kind of help folks listening or watching understand like what is protected speech on social media? Is misinformation protected? Like what, and then what's not, what would not be protected? Well, it all, when it comes to social media, it's usually just uh, you know, uh, individual companies' rules that decide what, what is and is not protected. Um, when it comes to things that aren't protected on social media or in First Amendment law, you know, threats of bodily harm or death um, are not and should not be protected. I actually think that sometimes some of the cynicism about, um, about social media uh, is at least in part that people would get away with, 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 with death threats and death threats aren't protected, you know, nor should they be discriminatory harassment, but that's a pattern of discriminatory behavior directed at a person because of their race, gender, et cetera. Um, that's not protected. Um, uh, and most, and I think that uh, most social media companies, you know, are, are, are aware of that. Um, but when it comes to misinformation, for example, um, I think there's a thought and I, I open with this, but that we could just root out misinformation easily without any harm to the truth. And it's just not that simple. And, and I think right now, um, the uh, some of the stuff that we're going to be, um, you know, uh, excluding because of uh, of a campaign against misinformation, we're later going to find out that actually those people were weren't, weren't just it 
wasn't misinformation. These people are actually right. Because if you look at some of the people who were canceled early on in COVID, for example, you know, they're, they're often making arguments that, uh, that later were, were, were found to, if, if not necessarily be true, to be not that far off the mark, or at least arguments that mainstream publications now are much more comfortable making without apologizing to the people who went there first. Um, Greg, this has been such an interesting conversation and very enlightening on all things related to free speech. Where can folks uh, find you online or learn more about the work that you're doing with FIRE? I'm at thefire.org, my whole organization, and we're looking, obviously, for more supporters, more talent, um, and plaintiffs. You know, if you you got a case, uh, a First Amendment claim against against local government or against the, uh, you know, let us know. Well, Greg Lukianoff, the president and CEO of FIRE, also best-selling author. I thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much.